Mm, hello? <laughs> Who is it, Jake? What's he want? Well, either editing the Elm Street audio has finally stripped him of his few remaining scraps of sanity, or he's doing a bad Billy voice impression from Black Christmas. What did you do with the audio, Eric? What did you... What did you do with the audio, Eric? Actually, I think it's both. We're doing the evil Midnight Bomber from the Tick references in the pre-credit bits now? Yeah, baby, yeah! Uh, here, give me the phone. Cause I'm the festive secret Santa! What's that? That's his secret! Eric, I'm passing you to Nick. I'm stuffing stockings with all the gifts! Hello? Zoe, 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 Zoe says to me... Eric! Shut the fuck up and start the goddamn episode! Christmas episode should start in just a second. Cool. Thanks for taking care of that. Yeah, no problem. So, Jake, you want me to make the obvious joke about how you're sold, you still need a rotary phone? I wouldn't. Right on. And welcome to this special holiday bonus episode of the Scare Stuff Podcast. This is Eric Dellinger, and joined by co-host Jacob Jones-Goldstein. Ho, ho, ho! <laughs> and Nick Leamy. It's me, Nick. <laughs> Agnes. <laughs> this episode is dedicated to Agnes. Don't tell them what we did. <laughs> <laughs> Just felt like an old 50s commercial there for a second. <laughs> Brought to you by Agnes. Don't tell them what we did. That's so disturbing. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, as the pre-credit intro implied, we are covering the original 1974 Black Christmas for a special holiday mini-sode. The Elm Street episode was really, really long, so we couldn't quite get it together. Even for, for us, it was long. Yeah. It was Even pretty for long. us, it was long. So we couldn't quite get it together for a four-movie holiday episode like we did last year, but we're still getting something in for the holiday. But what I can say is we have a very special guest and a really, really terrific discussion, because this time we've recorded the discussion ahead of time, so I can say with confidence, it's really good. (laughs) (laughs) Prescient and whatnot. (laughs) Yeah, I I would agree. I think uh, what's coming down the chimney is really pretty special. All right, here we go for our discussion of Black Christmas 1974, and we are joined by a very special guest. He is the author of many, many comics, and he's written for both of the big two, including Batman Secret Files for DC. For Marvel, if you read X-Books, you've almost certainly read his work on New Mutants, X-Force, Old Man Logan, but he's also written Ghost Rider, Iron Fist, and a really terrific Bullseye Mini, 
Vermich, he's written Sheltered the Violent, and he recently kickstarted Catch and Release, the latest addition to his murder book series. And in the horror vein, he recently worked on issue number three of Michael Walsh's horror anthology series, The Silver Coin. So we're very, very happy to welcome Ed Brisson. Yay! Welcome. Hey, thanks for having me, guys. Oh, thank you for joining us. Like I mentioned before we started recording, I've been wanting to have you on for a while. And then at one point you had mentioned that Black Christmas was a bit of an annual tradition in your household. So I said, perfect. Yeah, we uh, every Christmas we watch uh, as many Christmas horror films as we can sort of jam in. And Black Christmas is always the one that's guaranteed to be, you know, good. <laughs> also, apparently Elvis's yep. Christmas tradition. Wow. Apparently last three years of his life. Yeah. <laughs> He's not the only fan either. Apparently, um, Olivia Hussey. Uh, we ended up talking to Steve Martin when they're about to, they're potentially going to work on one project together. And he was like, oh, I loved your work. And she's like, oh, you must mean Romeo and Juliet. You're like, no, Black Christmas. I've watched it like 27 <laughs> times. <laughs> <laughs> well, I had never seen that. Well, I, I had never seen it. And we briefly discussed doing it for our Christmas episode last year. And it didn't quite make the cut because they're largely because there are three of them. And we we wanted to do a couple of individual things. And if you haven't listened to our last year's Christmas episode, well, you should do that right after listening to this one because it's also very good. <laughs> Evil Santas. <laughs> but I, you know, I, I sat down and I watched it last year and my wife came down and said, what you watching? You know, trying to avoid anything. I said, a Christmas movie. <laughs> and immediately after that was one of the phone calls. Oh. And then it's like, all right, so this is a movie called Black Christmas. Uh, <laughs> mm-hmm. So, yeah, but it, it's what a terrific film. Oh, it's classic. I love the bejesus of this film. That's why I hate the 2006 one so much, because it's just such a dichotomy. They're just so... Anyway, I'm digressing. Now, this film is wonderful, excellent casting. Chef's kiss. These latest episodes we've done are really making me feel old, because we... So we just did the first four installments of Nightmare on Elm Street, and for the... Both Black Christmas and the original Nightmare on Elm Street are both movies I first saw, like, 10 to 15 years ago. And thought, man, that's really, really good. I can see why it has the reputation that it does. And then I revisited them for this podcast and thought, holy shit, this is damn near a masterpiece. So I think I'm just getting old and, and you know, really elevating classics to, you know, their reputation. But man, this is I, I love the hell out of this movie. Just all John Saxon all the time these days. Yeah, I'll watch anything with John Saxon in it. All right. The man's a legend. <laughs> and how did you first discover Black Christmas? Uh, I don't remember when I first saw it, to be honest. I I was one of those kids who grew up around video stores, and I had like a TV and VCR in my room and grew up a horror junkie. Hmm. And so I would do that thing where I'd go to the video store every Monday, and they would have five for $5 for the old movies, and I would rent 10 or 15, and I would go through each selection of each video store, A through, you know, Z. Nice. Z for you Americans. <laughs> <laughs> But, and I would rent like, you know, 10 to 15 at a time and just bring them home and watch them. So, you know, somewhere early on in doing that, I guess, since it's a B. Uh, but uh, yeah, I, I I don't remember the first time I saw this. I know it definitely was when I was in my teens, so quite a while ago. Okay. But I've seen it, you know, easily a dozen times by now. Eric, do you remember our brief conversation in our little Google Hangouts uh, when I first watched it last year? Uh, are you talking about the, the specific bit of casting? Yeah. Okay, good. I was like, I don't want to bring that story up because I don't want to want Jake to get mad if I bring the story up. Bring it. So I, I was, I, I didn't scroll through. I couldn't remember the exact deal, except the basics that I remember is that I said that the lady in this looks a lot like Carrie Fisher, if I recall. 
because I'm I'm dumb, and you'll you'll pick up on that, Ed. And uh, and I'm really bad at recognizing faces and actors. And and I said, yeah, it, she really looks a lot like Carrie Fisher. And Eric goes, you mean Margot Kidder? I'm like, I hope not. <laughs> <laughs> it felt like you were doing a variation on that scene of in LA Confidential where Guy Pierce is mixing up the you know, the actress for a lookalike for the real person. I was like, is Jake doing a meta bit? Like, who's this Margot Kidder looking person? You mean Margot Kidder? <laughs> <laughs> oh, did I did I say Margot Kidder? You said Margot actually... Kidder. That's even worse than I remembered it. You said, who is this actress who looks a lot like Margot Kidder? And then I, I'm rewatching the movie now and I laugh because one of the first names you see, Solo, there's no other name on the screen. Margot Kidder. <laughs> you would have seen that on the screen before she showed up. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I figured I'd bring that up early. <laughs> yeah. So now every time I see Margot Kidder, I think of that scene in that like confidential. Boy, Margot Kidder's fun in this, though. The whole turtle uh, discussion. She has a lot of fun with this one. Apparently, she like required that anytime the character is drinking alcohol, that she actually be drinking alcohol and be drunk for the scene. <laughs> so I just I just finished reading for like the fourth time Easy Riders and Raging Bulls, which if you guys haven't read, highly recommend. Mm. And around this time was when uh, Margot Kidder was living in L.A. And everything that about her in the book sounds like that that character was probably not very far off of uh, what her life was actually like at that point. So yep. <laughs> the fact that she was asking that her character be drunk every time she's drunk on screen was probably just uh, a workaround for being able to drink on set rather than yeah. any, <laughs> any drive towards authenticity. She was definitely has been quoted as saying she did not expect this movie to go anywhere. Yeah. So it, you get that feeling she just didn't take it seriously at all. <laughs> yeah, and you certainly get that impression of when other cast members talk about her performance in the movie. A lot of folks allude to, yeah, that was pretty much Margo. Um, <laughs> that being said, I mean, aside from being very funny, she does give a, I think a really terrific performance. Yes. Overall, you know, those, the bits where, you know, the, the wounds of her character, where they show through, you know, the phone conversation with her mother, there's the bit where during the very first Moner call, where at the end where he drops the line, I'm going to kill you. And you see her face kind of shift for just a second. Mm -hmm. Yeah. She's really doing a hell of a job in the movie. Pretty much everyone is. I think everyone in this is basically fabulous. Yep. Amazing casting. And, you know, part of the long tradition of famous lead actors and actresses who starred young in horror movies that they wanted to forget or did forget and later discovered they were in. <laughs> yeah, I'm trying to figure out where this comes because she was in Sisters right around the same time, right? Yep, uh, like a Just couple before. years beforehand. Yeah, okay, 73, right. I think. And she was also in Amityville Horror later on. And then Rob Zombie brought her back for Halloween too. I mean, she's had an interesting range on horror. <laughs> <laughs> God damn it, I hate that movie. Uh, but we're not talking about that movie. Specifically Halloween 2 or both Rob Zombie Halloween? Both Rob Zombie Halloween. Okay. <laughs> I, I have a lot of feelings about those movies. but Respect. I've still never seen them, but uh, we'll cover them eventually. Oh, you don't need to see them. <laughs> My feeling in Rob Zombie movies, and I'll stand by this, is that they're great if you turn the sound off. Like, like <laughs> He can do a really great visual, but the plot is just like, ugh. I think it's not even the plot for me. It's his characters. Like, mm. I really like Devil's Rejects. The I do, Devil's too. Devil's Rejects, I thought was great. That's fun. That's fun. But, like, every single character in the Halloween films is just, like, a nasty shitbag who just, like, swears all the time. Even the kids. Mm -hmm. Like, everyone sucks. And, it, and it's just so <laughs> hard to really 
care about whether or not you're like you know cheering Michael Myers on because you, the cast is so terrible. Uh, not the cast themselves, but the characters are so terrible in the films. They're just they're very frustrating watches for me. Yep, fair. It's interesting you mention it like that because there's there's almost an element of that in this with the women in the frat. And I think he and I haven't watched a bunch of interviews with him, but they talked about it in a couple of places that they sort of aged them up a little bit and kind of made them a little bit more harsh rather than say innocent so that I guess maybe to to take the edge off them being slaughtered one by one, because this is, you know, very proto slasher. I mean, Peeping Tom is arguably the first, but this was right there. I guess this came out the same year, year before Texas Chainsaw? Same year, yeah. A couple months away. Same year. That was October. This was December. Yeah, and it, it does so many kind of firsts for slashers, but it's, in thinking about it afterwards, is that it kind of introduces the idea of slashers as, you know, a punishing force for bad behavior, you know. Sure, but I feel like the characters in this feel more, like that. the women in the sorority house feel more real, except for maybe the sorority house mom. Uh, everyone feels more, <laughs> Miss Mac. more real, right? Absolutely. Like, um, whereas, like, you know, like if we just briefly sort of mention the 2006 one where everyone is just like this weird character of a, of a sorority sister, I, I found that in this one they, they felt real. They had like, it felt mm-hmm. like they were dealing with real things. They're not all the sex obsessed running around in bra and panties. You know, I thought it was great. I think the stuff that Olivia Hussey was going through was a, uh, was really interesting and especially for the time pretty progressive agreed and marco kidder is really the only one that sort of like falls a bit into the stereotype but she's you know she's kind of a mess anyway real quick you mentioned miss mac and i, I first off i i adore the character i love it so much i don't know why she just makes me so happy but she is obviously kind of cartoonish and comical a little over the top but it's funny that she's like that because she's apparently actually based on the personality and mannerisms of Bob Clark's real life aunt. So like she's based off of reality and is the most cartoonish. I found that very funny. <laughs> I legitimately was going to try and track down the Italian Swiss colony straight sherry that she was drinking, but it looks like they discontinued it about looks like about four or five years ago was when places around here stopped selling it. So it's like, ah, shit. But to your point, yeah, I would I would absolutely agree that the characters are far more three dimensional than you normally get yes. in this kind of film. And yeah, when you compare it directly to the two thousand six version, which has like Mary Elizabeth Winstead, who we know is an incredible performer, mm-hmm. and in that forgets that she's supposed to have a Texas accent about seventy percent of the time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it, you know, to compare the two, you know, there's protos, and I guess Bob Clark talks about that, or he refused to do, you know, have women shot in the new and everything he always wanted to make them three-dimensional characters yep and again and you, you talk about the progressive stuff with olivia hussey because this was a year after roe yeah one year yes yep. so that was significant and a significant subplot to include in something like this and i think that that adds to part of uh, you know when when people talk about why this is a classic or a cult classic almost universally they point to not knowing the killer yep and i think that's a big part of it but i think another part of it is just how good the movie is in terms of performances and the cast i mean it's just so solid we'll get into it more as we go but yeah i think a lot of the engine behind that in terms of the the depiction of the characters in it is just i think in watching a lot of bits and pieces of bob clark's filmography and the build-up to this there's a real drive in a lot of his work 
for just a feeling of authenticity with characterization or, you know, to a depiction of like sort of authentic or intimate feeling moments that you don't often see. Like um, even in his other horror movies, we'll probably talk a little bit about Death Dream here in a little bit, but that absolutely has quite a bit of that as well. But it's I mean, it comes through a lot in the way he his approach to humor, which he's so well known for in his later films. So many of the jokes in his movies are driven by just the simple act of people stifling laughter. It comes up in Christmas Story. It comes up in Porky's. It comes up here. And that is a a humor mechanism that he does with this feeling of authenticity that I haven't actually off the top of my head seen anyone replicate as well. It's really striking his attention to character throughout a, a lot of the movies he's worked on. Less so Loose Cannons, which was the last one of his I watched today, but the uh, the 1990 Buddy Cop movie with Gene Hackman and Dan Aykroyd, which I had to watch because it was written by Richard Matheson. So. Yes. <laughs> well, let me, because I don't know how many other Bob Clark movies I've seen, um, but since you just watched a bunch, they all have basically the exact same opening scene, because this and Christmas Story, it's roughly the same thing, with the, <laughs> you know, just less of a, a voiceover from Ralphie. But it's, you know, this, the house and the Christmas music playing. <laughs> I just, I didn't realize it was made by the same person the first time I saw it. And I remember watching it, I'm like, that's exactly like a Christmas story. So I was having that kind of reaction a lot during it. But Death Dream has a very striking opening, but no, not in, not in the same no, way. It's so, not a house and Christmas no, music. No house. No, no. Death Dream begins in Nam. So. <laughs> you know, I, speaking of just real quick of the Christmas music. So one of the things we do on this podcast is I do a community connection each episode. Nick picks on it. So the way I start each of those is I, IMDb has a collaborations thing and you put the two things in and say, you know, 90% of the time with community and more recent stuff, it's like three stunt people and a sound person and older ones, there's nothing. But this one had three names and that surprised me when I put it in. And the names were James Pierpont, France Xavier Gruber, and Joseph Moore. Do those names mean anything to anybody? Not off the top of my head. So this is our community question, just because I thought it was funny that these popped up. So James Pierpoint wrote Jingle Bells. Fran Xavier Gruber and Joseph Moore wrote the music and words to Silent Night. <laughs> and Silent Night and Jingle Bells appear in this film. And they also appear in the season one, episode 12, Comparative Religion, which is my favorite episode of Community. Uh, so... I just went with IMDb's suggestion this time for the direct collaborators who wrote Silent Night and Jingle Bells that were in both movies. So that's our community connection for this one. But it, it made me laugh when it popped up. Watch Nick be okay with this one. No. Just oh, okay. No. Hey, no. Songs are in both of them. No. Uh, they're also in like 700 other movies. Like you click say. on them, their names, and it'll show what they're in. And it just like the list just kept populating, which was really pretty entertaining. Our next uh, uh, Christmas episode is be like, this movie has snow in it and snow shows up in community. <laughs> My community connection is God because he so loved the world. He gave his only son, Jesus, who is therefore tied to every Christmas. <laughs> no, I just thought it was funny that the names actually populated. It's like, in IMDb, who the hell are these guys? Oh, our community connection is public domain. <laughs> There were other ones, you know, they John Saxon connections and things like that. But it's right, like, right, no, right. IMDb said these ones. We're going with IMDb this time. Uh -huh. So anyway, there's your community connection. Jingle bells. Probably shouldn't <laughs> say it too much because I don't know if we're going to get sued by anybody. Well, that was a ride. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Scary Stuff Pod, Ed. All right. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, speaking of folks who worked on the movie, why don't we go ahead and do our little production rundown? I don't mind if I do. So this is, like we said, Black Christmas, released 1974. Uh, it's directed by Bob Clark, as you stated, who's also done Children Should Play With Dead Things, Death Dream, Porky's, and A Christmas Story. Children Should Play With Dead Things is so good. Which we could have done it, but people didn't vote for it. I'm looking at you, listeners. That was episode 14, man. That was a year ago. Jake holds a grudge, man. Oh, we're we're letting things go now? On the Eat Shit and Die podcast? That's true. Fair point. Yeah, I hadn't seen either of his previous... So he did... Bob Clark did three films that are generally classified as horror movies. Children Shouldn't Play With Dead Things, which is not his first film. There is a one film he did before that which we'll probably talk about later, which he made like during his student days. But there's Children Shouldn't Play With Dead Things, Death Dream, and then this. And then after Black Christmas, he started transitioning into other genres because, as he put it in an interview, he said, well, back in my day when you got started in filmmaking, you either got started by doing horror or porn. And so after he made Black Christmas, he decided to start transitioning into other things. The Wes Craven route. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, Wes Craven did both. Sometimes at the same time. So immediately after this was a film I hadn't seen until the, the buildup for this was after this, he did Breaking Point, which is out of print, not streaming anywhere. So I had to get the DVD from Netflix. But it is a really interesting. Well, you talk about feeling old and then you held up a Netflix DVD envelope. <laughs> I am one of like the four remaining DVD you know, male subscribers. It's like you and my mom. <laughs> <laughs> but if there's anyone out there who has a fascination for the the post Death Wish Post Walking Tall, nineteen seventies, you know, man on a mission, crime films. Uh, this one's kind of interesting. <laughs> Aptly enough, it stars Bo Svensson, who took over for Joe Don Baker in Walking Tall after the first one. The screenplay's by Stanley Mann, who wrote Eye of the Needle and did the screenplay for Firestarter and Skywriters and the William Wyler movie The Collector. And Bo Svensson is the lead, and it's the, the lead cop in it is Robert Culp. The villain in it, another reason I was intrigued, is John Colicos, who was Baltar in BSG and Core in Star Trek. Folks our age probably know he voiced Apocalypse in the X-Men cartoon. Oh, you had me at Baltar. Anyone who has an interest in that era of like 70s action films, do not look up the trailer if you're at all curious about it. Because the trailer gives they away give all the, the whole movie. It gives away everything from the final third specifically, which is amazing. The first two thirds are... Clark had has a bit of a a languid pacing approach to a lot of stuff, which in a lot of his movies work in his favor in that movie. It it drags a bit, but man, that last third is fun. Bo Svensson basically kills a guy with the Baron Von Raschke iron claw by just, so it was, that movie's a ride. And then before black Christmas was death dream, which I saw and I liked so much. I had to pick it up. I really want to find an excuse to do this on the podcast because this is a, Thoroughly interesting film and particularly interesting seeing a decidedly anti-Vietnam horror movie as early as 1972. Wow. Between that, the abortion stuff and this, that's that's awfully political for the guy who made a Christmas story. (laughs) This movie is also written by Roy Moore, who also wrote She Cried Murder, The Last Chase and Rael. Edited by Stan Cole, who also worked on Popcorn. Prom Night 4, Delirious from Evil, Murder by Decree, and A Christmas Story. You mentioned Popcorn. So Popcorn, Clark worked on in some capacity as well, because that was originally being done by Alan Ormsby, who was Clark's friend. Alan Ormsby wrote and is one of the lead actors in Children Shouldn't Play With Dead Things. Alan Ormsby also went on to write and direct Deranged. He wrote Death Dream. And 
he was on Popcorn as well, but he left the project. I think it was due to producer disputes. But Cole is interesting between Cole and you're probably about to get to the DP as well. But there's a lot of folks in this movie who, as soon as Bob Clark started working with them, he continued to work with them for the rest of his career. Stan Cole, I think with the exception of one movie, which is the Jack Lemmon movie tribute from the early 80s, he edited every single movie of Bob Clark's after this. Huh. I mean, and and that's all the way up to Karate Dog, you know, the TV movies and, and both Baby Geniuses movies. Uh, Hold up. Karate Dog? You heard him. That, I believe, was Bob Clark's <laughs> last feature credit was Karate Dog. He was doing a lot of family television at the time and kind of alternating between that and trying to do more standard dramatic fare. But yeah. Cinematography was by Reginald H. Morris, who also worked on Empire of the Ants, A Name for Evil, The Food of the Gods, and A Christmas Story. I like The Food of the Gods. That's any, Anything with like giant mutated animals is a good day for me. <laughs> <laughs> we have music by Carl Zitzer, who worked on The Gate, Body Parts, Love Bites, and Don't Be a Menace to South Central at Drinking Your Juice in the Hood. <laughs> That took a hard left there at the end. <laughs> well, Zitcher, so he did the, the score for all of, of Clark's prior, or at least the two parts. He did the score for Children Shouldn't Play With Dead Things, and he does the score for Death Dream. Mm-hmm. After Black Christmas, he pivots, and he goes into sound editing. So I don't think he's really done a full score since. I think maybe on one or two things, like somewhat recently. But he became a very prolific sound editor, and, and those are the movies Nick mentioned. So yeah, he's had a hell of a career in that. But I wish he had done more composing because I love his score for this in Death Dream. The score for this is wild. Yeah. Yes. The brush piano stuff, which I'm sure we'll talk about, that is used to an extent in Death Dream as well. But it's definitely put in the foreground here, which is appropriate given some of the plot points. Now, this movie had a fascinating uh, number of actors in it. So I definitely had interest in the casting director and found that to be Karen Hazard, who also casted Prom Night, The Clown Murders. Deadly Harvest, The Pit, and A Christmas Story. (laughs) (laughs) Noticing the theme here. All right. Yeah. The only other production member I had stuff written down on was I I had to look up the costumer, who is Debbie Weldon, because the the costumes in this movie are are so memorable. Oh, yeah. But yeah, so Debbie Weldon did the costume work on this, and it seems like a lot of the actors were encouraged to bring their own wardrobe, so it's hard to tell who brought what. I really hope. That Art Hindle's coat, you know, the it, basically, it was it was, it was his, his coat. Okay, good. <laughs> he still has it, apparently. Yep. That you talk about iconic costumes is that that dude's fur coat, man. That was that was just great. It was his uh, when he busts into the police station wearing it. It's such a great entrance. You know, we got fur coats <laughs> in this and water beds in the uh, the last episode, and it just feels like it's like all these cultural artifacts that just sort of disappeared from like cultural consciousness. I mean, I'm sure people still have water beds and fur coats. But they seem like just not a thing anymore. And it I don't know how it <laughs> happened or when it happened, but they're just <laughs> gone. Weirdly, like a, about a week ago, I did a deep dive on what happened to waterbeds. Oh, wow. Really? <laughs> I, I just out of nowhere. Well, I, you know, growing up, we had one in our house that uh, I have a, a scar on the back of my neck from a pillow fight I got into. Oh, geez. <laughs> back in the, the 90s with my brother, uh, because I brought the pillow up to sort of slam him. And he'd gone down on, on a waterbed to get away, and I hit a light fixture that was on the Ooh. ceiling <laughs> oh. and smashed it. And oh. I came down, and it, and it went on the back of my neck and continued smashing, oh. but then went onto the waterbed and slashed part of the waterbed, which is hard to do It's because the waterbed oh is really thick, right? The, it's yeah. really like rubber. But yeah, I was looking it up because I'm like, you know, what happened to waterbeds? We don't see them anymore. 
but yeah, I guess they fell out of favor in the nineties just because I forgot you had to like constantly monitor the water and put chlorine in and stuff. Otherwise you have like just this giant, you know, bag filled with algae otherwise. Yeah. My, bro- my brother had one in his first apartment and I, I don't know when they got rid of it, but once that was gone, like I, I probably didn't think about water beds for 20 years. I, I use what I have a water pillow like for sleeping, nice. which has like a little similar thing, but uh, you know, that thing, if it pops, it's not going to, do twenty thousand dollars for the damage no right (laughs) (laughs) which i think was really the big thing and that's why they went away it's funny you mention uh pillow fight injuries i chipped a tooth in a pillow fight once see (laughs) yours or your brother's no it was at a sorority house i wish i was kidding (laughs) (laughs) no you don't (laughs) pillow fights turning into hardcore death matches good lord (laughs) don't wear glasses during a pillow fight that's all i'm gonna say (laughs) <laughs> it's funny i almost did a deep dive into waterbeds as well because they were on my brain because we just did dream master nightmare on elm street 4 which has the, the waterbed death uh i had a friend in high school his older brother had a waterbed and then after you know he went to college i never thought of him again much like jake never occurred to me what happened to him so it's between my brother having one and everybody wants some and in between nothing <laughs> <laughs> it's not until richard linklater brought him back in style but yeah Fur coats, same thing. Just don't see them anymore. Yeah. But yeah, so yeah, the, the, the costumes on this fascinated me. I will note Debbie Weldon had a really interesting career. Uh, she worked on Breaking Point, the movie after this that Bob Clark did. Uh, she worked on The Silent Partner, which is a really terrific crime thriller from the 70s, uh, which was co-written by Curtis Hansen. We talked about LA Confidential earlier. She worked on Arthur Penn's Dead of Winter, Harold Becker's Sea of Love, uh, Christoph Gans's Crying Freeman, and she worked as a costumer on Freddy vs. Jason. Nice. Tied in with us just talking about the Nightmare on Elm Street franchise. So, so something that I, I bet you, if you check all of these, we know that this was filmed in Canada. Uh, and I guarantee you the majority of the people are Canadian too. I'm looking yep. up Sam Cole right now, I believe. Uh, it's Canadian. I think most of the people in this were. Yeah, yeah, probably. Because both Debbie Weldon and Stan Cole both worked on a movie called The Neptune Factor as well, which I had listed as a weird link that I wanted to dig into. So I'm willing to bet that was a Canadian production as well. Right. Because it was a Canadian production that brought Bob Clark in, you know, to do Black Christmas. And they financed Death Dream and distributed Children Shouldn't Play With Dead Things, as I recall. Just real quick, I believe it was John Saxon and Olivia Hussey who were non-Canadians and everyone else was Canadian. Um, I know for a fact from my viewing of Masters, Masters of Horror, of Horror yeah. that, that, that there's actually Canadian law that you're allowed to have no more than two non-Canadians on set. Not true, but... Are they, oh, there are exceptions? <laughs> that's not true at all. Uh, I, oh, I, give I, it to me. I used to work in... Uh, back in the day, I worked health and safety for film and uh, television, so I would go to sets. Okay. You, it's not that you have to have two-thirds, but the thing that was going on back then, uh, which I mentioned a little bit earlier, I think before folks got on, there was a thing called the, we get the proper title and then the title we usually refer to it as, but there was a Canadian tax shelter. So a lot of films from this era, it was called the capital cost allowance, which if you invested in movies for a while, you could write off 60% of your investment. Oh, wow. And so you had a lot of doctors and dentists were, were investing in films to get made. And then at one point, uh, Canada wanted just more Canadian content. And so they upped it to 100%. So if you were, wow, if you wanted to write off money, uh, you could invest in a film and write. And if the film was a loss, in a lot of ways, for some people, it was better if the film was a disaster oh, and wow. then come out because they could just write off the entirety of, of their investment. 
And so that was a thing from 1974. So uh, I believe I couldn't get confirmation, but I'm about 75% sure that Black Christmas was an early Canadian tax shelter film. Okay. Wow. And it went until about 1982. Uh, uh, David Cronenberg, his entire film career was kicked off by the Canadian tax shelter. That's how he was able to fund his movies. And actually in media, his films became an argument against the tax shelter. Like <laughs> the, uh, There were a lot of reporters who were like, this is what your money's paying for. This is what your taxes are paying for is, is this sort of deprivation. But uh, yeah, it, it lasted for eight years and there was a ton of films. But for that, uh, 75% of the main cast and production team had to be Canadian. Okay. So, okay. so that's probably what they were talking about uh, back then. Right. Was that quota you had to meet. And, and still right now. So there is a thing in Canada with the, um, there's an NFB, which is National Film Board. And there's another, and I'm blanking on the, on the name. But there, there's also a thing where you have to have, uh, you know, a certain amount of people have to be Canadian and you can access government funding or government support for your films. Okay. But back then, these are all tax shelter films, which, you know, if you have the time, it's definitely, it's a really interesting time in Canadian cinema where we, you know, went from having something like five or six Canadian films a year to having like a hundred. Wow. But, you know, a ton of them didn't come out. And for some reason, a ton of them are horror. Like, there's a lot of, like, I, I think, I, I may be mistaken, but I think The Pit was also one. I think you're right. Yeah. David yes. Cronenberg yes. is definitely. Uh, but there's a lot of, like, uh, was that other? Blue Monkey, I think, was one, which was a weird, weird Canadian film. Uh, Pin, I believe. I don't, I don't have a list in front of me, but yeah. A lot of stuff. I think we've got a new theme for an episode. <laughs> Uh, There's actually a Canadian horror podcast. I don't know if they're still going, but if they are, I'll give them a quick shout out. Podcast called A Part of Our Scaridage. Nice. And it's specifically dedicated to Canadian horror movies. Awesome. That's lovely. I do have a brief list here. I'm just going to quickly run through. Uh, Black Christmas, Terror Train, Happy Birthday to Me, which had... I just saw that! It's not a good movie, but... (laughs) No, but it's fascinating. (laughs) Jaylee Thompson. The cover to it, the poster for it, was so horrifying with that kebab going in the mouth. Yes, yes. Every time went in the uh, into the VHS store, it's like ah oh, that one. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> My bloody Valentine, visiting hours, prom night, the brood, scanner, shivers, Ilsa, she wolf, this SS. Wow, which I did not know that was a tax shelter film, but uh, I didn't know that was even Canadian. But uh, there we go. Wow, very nice. I've seen part of that. Ilsa. Ilsa. Yeah. yeah, I saw a part of it. Years I don't feel ago. good about myself for that. No. <laughs> I, I think Germany has something similar, maybe, because I remember reading about how Uwe Boll had a career. I was about to say, wherever Uwe Boll is at the moment, that's yeah. where the, the It was almost the same thing, where if the films had losses, the investors did better. I, mm-hmm. I don't know if it was the exact same, but I, it's, I, I was kind of associated that sort of thing with him. I vaguely remember that actually also being the case. He did a lot of his films out in Vancouver when I was working there. So you know, I, apparently from everything I've heard, everyone who worked with him really liked him a lot. Yeah, that's that's the reputation. Yeah, even though he liked to beat the shit out of critics, uh, yeah. yes. in, in the ring, the but, boxing you know. ring, <laughs> oh, fantastic fest. I can't imagine there were a lot of like retakes and things like that. Like, oh, we got it, let's go. Yeah. You know. Yeah. <laughs> so this is produced by uh, Canadian Film Development Corporation, uh, who a number of these we just mentioned uh, produced Scanners, Rabid, Videodrome, The Brood, Shivers, My Bloody Valentine, and was distributed in Canada by Ambassador Film 
which also distributed Dress to Kill, The Burning, The Amityville Horror, Willard, Deep Red, and Zombie. And it was distributed in the U.S. by Warner Brothers, who also worked on such things like Malignant, Dr. Sleep, and It. And they changed the title when they first released it in the States, too. Mm-hmm. To, was it Chris? Oh, I'm blanking on it. Something Evil Night, I know. It's like Silent Night, Silent Night Evil, evil Night, night right? or something yeah. yes, like that. Yes, yes. They, they, they were scared that the title Black Christmas might cause the film to be mistaken as a black exploitation flick. Yes. Yeah, that's what they yeah. were scared of. <laughs> they, they also released it in July for some, like, uh, when I was yeah. reading up on it, which, like, I don't understand, but, you know, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny, Clark's previous film, Death Dream, went through a bunch of different titles. It was written as The Veteran. It was shot under something else I'm blanking on at the moment. And when it was released, it was released under both Death Dream and also Dead of Night. And right. the Blu-ray I've got, even though it says Death Dream, the title on the actual print still says Dead of Night. So we have four different titles for that one. I think this one, Black Christmas was Stop Me, was the original shooting title. Something, yeah, something along those lines, the original Roy Moore script. Yep. Man, I get it. I change every book I write. I change the title like 18 times before <laughs> I release it. So I get it. Speaking of origin, is, is Olivia Hussey British? She's originally from Argentina, I believe, and raised in Britain. Yeah. Mm. Okay. Because I was thinking her accent, and in my head, the accent, you know, she has in this is not like British or it's just, you know, rich people in the 70s. <laughs> Because they all sounded like that in seventies movies, and it was it was the only way that I was able to kind of recognize where I'd seen her before. Because she was also in it. She played Audra Denborough, uh, Bill Denborough's wife in the in the in the nineteen ninety it. The Tommy Lee the, Wallace. Okay. The, and I remember thinking of the same thing. Oh, she's got that seventies rich person accent. Then too. <laughs> really, not the not the Franco Zeffirelli Romeo and Juliet. That's not the. I've seen that. It's very okay. good. I didn't realize she was you know in that. Be- Look, you know, cultural the touchstone for me is it. So that's that's what I know her best from. Yeah, I assumed you saw the Zeffirelli thing in high school or something. Because yeah, yeah, that's where I, I know saw her. that years later. I didn't see any good movies in high school. She also went on to work in uh, Psycho Four: The Beginning and Virus: The End. Nice. Yeah. Is that the 1980 yeah. virus or a later yes. one? No, the earlier okay, one. Yeah, yeah. Bose Fenson was also in that. So I wonder because that was the the Kenji Fukusaku movie that had both the Japanese cast and an international cast. So I wonder if it might have been a Canadian casting agency because there's a lot of overlap with that and um, and Breaking Point. So I was just gonna say I thought she was fantastic in this. Like, oh yeah, you, you get a lot of it. All right, so you know I watched this and then I watched the second one and then I watched this again. So really, everything in this is so much heightened. Not the second <laughs> one, the remake sequel remake whatever you want to call it a little of both yeah. so it really you know watching this again after that it's like man everybody in this should have won awards <laughs> <laughs> but she really is she's very good the main all the main actors in this i just think are are terrific yeah it's a solid cast and I, like i don't know if uh if anyone's already on top of this but i, I was reading all the trivia and stuff earlier i thought it was really funny that olivia hussey took this because her psychic told her to Yes. 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 Showed up on set telling everybody that because her psychic said the next movie you're going to do is going to be a huge success. Uh, so she yep. was telling everybody when she showed up, this movie's going to be huge. <laughs> that's, that's lovely. We're going to do that with the topic for an episode. We go visit one of the psychics around Delaware and say, what should we do for our next topic? And just go with that. <laughs> and even Andrea Martin, who's very good in this, but even her part was originally going to be Gilda Radner. Yes. Then left to do mm-hmm. SNL. So, so yeah, just like right away, like, you know, like yes. a month before filming went to do SNL. It's probably the right choice. Really stupendous cast, top to bottom. It helps that they're all like 30. 
instead of, you know, 18, <laughs> I guess. Well, no, they're, on average, they're all about 26, 27. There's like one. Yeah, but like Olivia Hussey was like 21 or 22 and everybody else is 29 or 30. Yeah. So that your average is skewed. She was 23. The majority of them were like 26, 27. Kier Delay, I believe, was like 34. I said, Kier Delay looks like he's pushing 45. Yeah, yeah. Black Christmas 90210 over here. Particularly oh. during his piano recital sequence where he looks like he's trying to lycanthropize into William Sadler. I, <laughs> he, I, I felt personally that his portrayal in this movie was the weakest part of it. Really? Yeah. It, like he just, he, he, to me, he was just very wooden. He just seemed like every 70s jackass in every movie, but I thought he did a good job. Like, because he, he had to. Well, but it's a tough role. First, he, he wasn't yes, on yeah, the set herring, with everybody yeah. else for the yep. most part. Yeah, he, I think he only worked with uh, Olivia Hussey. Yeah, he was there for like a week, I think. I read. Yeah. Everything else looks like he's working with, talking to other people, and he's not. But, it, you know, for him, he's because he's got to be a suspect. He's got to be, you know, a giant sack of dicks to his girlfriend. <laughs> <laughs> and but also has to be believable as you know this pianist and this you know artist and all that and i thought he he did a good job of kind of rolling between the different sort of aspects of his personality and this to make you think he could have done it versus you know to make you believable that he you could go either way on him yeah i'm a i i'm gonna throw him with you like i think he makes like he the, his character's built up to be a pretty good patsy at the end and makes that end bit believable you know it makes it you can see how the cops would think it was him and just stop looking, right? That's all. Yeah. Done. That's all over. I, I felt it was a decent setup for the cops as an excuse that, you know, that, that obviously the police were going to put these, all these pieces together and think he's the suspect. I would have, I think, appreciated him more if the movie had done that to me as well. But at no point did I think anyone they portrayed was the killer. It just always felt like he was just constantly in the, in the attic the whole time hmm. for me personally. Yeah, I don't know. I think the first time I watched this, I thought it was maybe him until they cut to that last scene. Mm-hmm. And you're like, oh, shit, it's it's definitely not him. Because he kind of kept popping up, right? Because he was sleeping upstairs earlier. Yeah. Uh, he was pretty good red herring, I think. Yeah, very. Especially when he goes into the basement looking for him. Like, come on, man. Who yeah, does this? kicks in the window. <laughs> kicks in a window. <laughs> like, at that point, I was almost sure it was him. Yeah. There's no reason for that for his character. <laughs> But he's he's gone through. It looks like he's gone through some psychosis. He's really not handling the baby stuff real well. No. no. <laughs> and uh, you know, like I love the scene too, where he's like, uh, I was watching it with my kid earlier, and that one scene where he's like, "You're gonna have the baby, and we're gonna get married." <laughs> You're like just like no, like <laughs> dude, calm it was, down. It was real unsettling, and it really kind of just I think uh, played pretty well into how controlling he is, which just lends sort of more credence to the fact that uh, he could have been Billy. His line delivery that got me was um, when when he's talking to Olivia Hussey and he's talking about, you know, I want to talk to you about the baby later tonight. And she says, you know, nothing you're going to say is going to dissuade me. And his line is simply, we'll see. Just, yeah. just very firmly, matter of factly, we'll see. And, and yeah, the scene where he destroys the piano is I just yeah. I love that scene it, with the exception of, you know, it's. I was around a lot of music majors when there's piano recitals, they cram that shit in like multiple recitals back to back in the hall. I really want the scene of whoever was scheduled to go after him coming into the hall. I'm like, ah, oh, shit. And seeing this music stand. <laughs> I love the, the shot later in the movie where John Saxon flips the light on. He sees the, the stand in the piano, but it's always shot with him in the back. Yep. And he never like comes in. I, yes. I just thought that was a really cool shot. Like I, I dug. Yes. Cause you know, that's the moment where John Saxon's like, yep. This is the guy. Yep. Yeah, that shot. There's some really, really 
nifty camera work in this film and, and camera set. Clark really has a striking eye in a lot of ways. It comes up a lot in, in both Death Dream and Breaking Point. But uh, one thing I noticed like watching it is with Olivia Hussey as the film starts to ramp up in that final stretch is the way it frames her. You know, during one of the, the next to last Moner calls as she's reflected in the mirror, but not only is she reflected in the mirror, she's very specifically framed on the edge of it where it has kind of the fractal edge. So you're getting her two layered and then it shoots her from between, you know, the bars of the banister when mm-hmm. she's at, at that point, after Andrea Martin's been killed, the next shot is her being framed between the bars of the banister to, you know, to reinforce the isolation and the entrapment. He did some good work with that staircase in this movie. Yes. Lots. Yeah. I believe the staircase is one of the main reasons they chose that location. They were like, this is perfect. This will be able to fit uh, all the things we want to do with it appropriately. It's also funny you say he has a good eye considering the, the one eye is the, the iconic shot from this oh. film. Mm. But weirdly, I was just thinking that that's also the cover to Porky's, uh, yeah. <laughs> which is his other movie. Like Bob Clark had nine things and he just repurposed them in different ways. Sure. Or, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's it's funny. One of the, the things I came across and reading uh, something, probably the IMDb trivia, maybe, was that this was number 87 on Bravo's scariest movie moments. Yep. And I, I kind of looked it up, and it took me a little while to find what moment they were actually talking about. Because I was like, here's a list. The 87 movie moments. Black Christmas. Okay. Which one? <laughs> For me, like, when I watched this the first time, the, the eyeball through the crack. Yes. Nope, absolutely. Horrified me the first time I saw this. You know, as a teenager, I remember watching it, like, probably at 3 o'clock in the morning, you know, uh, lights out. And uh, I remember that little bit of imagery. But I, I think the thing I like about this movie a lot is, like, the economy of the scares and like you don't see a ton of blood throughout the film. Nope. And barely any. Yeah. The deaths are more implied than they are shown except for the, the suffocation originally. But uh, I'd like it. He, he just kind of let, lets it build, lets attention build. And then you, you have those sort of moments and they, and they work really well. You know, unlike if we were to compare it, say to the 2006 version of this film yeah. <laughs> where the director was like, you know what everyone really liked is that fucking eye. How can we get that eye into here as many times as possible? I know. Christmas ornaments. Yeah. Other than bathhouse. The bathhouse one was the one that got me in the 2006. Like, how is this guy uh, that close to the floor? You know. Yeah. Anyway, they just kind of kept going to it. And I think the, the thing they didn't realize is that that moment was scary because that's, that's the closest we ever see. Billy, right? We never, we yep. never see him, and and he's right on top of her in that moment too. Yeah. Like they're like a foot apart, just the door between them. Oh, it's terrifying. It's funny you mentioned the uh, the lack of brutality with the deaths in this. It was actually a an artistic choice by Bob Clark because the original script called for more brutal moments. He was like, let's tone it down. It'll be more effective if we keep it subtle on screen. And I think it was a it was the right move. It was absolutely perfect. Yeah, I agree, hundred percent. Though the Claire death with the suffocation. There's a bit of sincerity to her response because they didn't actually tell her precisely what was going to happen. So when right. he comes at her with the plastic, she's like, ah! she's like legit <laughs> freaking out. And I think that adds to it, honestly. It's funny. And that I had assumed uh, I was talking about the Bravo list is that the moment would be the eye, but it's not. It's uh, no, really. It's when he kills Claire with the plastic wrap. Mm. Wow. Which, I mean, okay. it's scary, but it's not like the, the peaks here. But then I kind of read like more of this list and like. So that was 87. 86 was the monkeys flying to capture Dorothy and Wizard of Oz. 
Uh, it's like, uh, oh, okay, so you're just saying stuff. <laughs> I, I, I kind of went through the list. I won't stay on this really, but I went through. Well, what other movies have we covered on here? Like number seventy was the stepfather when Stephanie walks in and Jerry's having that meltdown, and like, all right, look, yeah, perfect. For Phantasm at twenty five is when Mike wakes up in the cemetery with the tall man standing over him. That one's pretty good because the zombies come out the side. It's good. That's, that's yeah, good. I just that's kind of the as far as a jump moment goes. That's kind of the iconic yeah, that and the I ending, of course, but. Nightmare on Elm Street, which we just covered, was seventeen with Tina getting sliced apart by Invisible Freddy in the room. It's like, all right, fine. Oh, that one's that one's rough. That's good. But the one that got me was number twenty-eight. Was when a stranger calls, and it's when uh, the lady in that is informed that calls are coming from inside the house. And all I can think is, that's in this movie too. It's in this. Why'd you go with the other one? <laughs> <laughs> this one even has the more dynamic scene of the guy running around the. Uh, what is it, the switchboard? It's not a switchboard. What would that be called? No. I want to say the the call center, but that seems wrong. <laughs> to, to be fair, I probably would give it to When a Stranger Calls instead of this movie. Because while this movie did it first, by that point you learn the calls from inside the house. It's like, oh God, how's she going to react? Whereas in When a Stranger Calls, it's like, oh God, the kids. <laughs> it's a very different response when you hear that statement. Sure, but are they 60 apart? Because that feels wrong to me. I don't, anyway, some problem. <laughs> yeah, let's, let's not go too far down this road before. But it was just one before Jake canceled. Like, I don't even want the Bravo channel anymore. This is stupid. <laughs> but I will say for Claire, who uh, who's played by Lynn Griffin, who she's on a lot of the, the behind the scenes features on the Shout Factory Blu-ray. And she seems very fun. And she demonstrates at one point, you know, that for the the bit where she has the plastic wrap she's like you know yeah it's not actually that bad to film with it look you just hold the and she she like replicates sitting there with the plastic holding her breath and does a demo of the whole thing but what i find interesting about her death it's decidedly shocking and it decidedly holds up but talking about this movie's blending of horror and humor is her death you get you know basically just a fraction of it and then it jumps to a joke where it jumps to you know Mrs. Mac with the dress, and it's not only that it cuts to a joke, but it's it's a basically a fourth wall break with Mrs. Mac looking down the barrel of the camera. So it's interesting you know, that something ranks that high on an iconic you know scare moment when it's immediately followed by someone doing a womp womp look into it and a very <laughs> funny one at that point. But it's the movie sticking the horror and the humor so close, right on top of each other, so early. I thought was so interesting. I feel that moment is probably helped by what they do with it later. In a lot of slashers and horror films, you'll have your victim taken down by the antagonist, and that's it. Maybe they're found again one more time just to scare the final girl or whoever's you know in that moment. And then that's it. So it's the initial kill and a throwback just to alert the hero of what's going on. Mm. Whereas this, they consistently come back to that attic scene where you just see her in the chair. It's the, the movie makes you sit in that moment. It doesn't let you forget. It's like, no, don't you dare forget about Claire. Claire has been the attic every second of this movie after that moment. And don't you forget it. And it, it, it resonated with me every time she pops up, every time I see the picture of her on the cover of the VHS, I'm like, Ugh, Claire. And <laughs> You're right. The actual attack is very simplistic, but the follow-up gives it such gravitas, in my opinion. Which is funny, because the cops forgot about her. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's uh, my favorite part about the end. Is there's just bodies in the attic. And they're like, okay, case closed. Case closed, yeah. We're, just... we're not even going to search the whole house for the people who were still missing. In their defense, they did say they were going to send investigators to follow up, and, and they would have done a full sweep of the house. Sure. 
<laughs> Nonetheless. No, I, I am really struck by that. And in terms of so much of the movie being about, we talked again about the Bob Clark's approach to his depiction of actors and depiction of people very much being that sense of authenticity and that sense of frankness. And he mentioned specifically going into this movie, he wanted to, you know, have the sorority sisters feel like real people. He didn't want to do, I keep thinking of it as being very Ozu-esque with his film, um, Ohio, where he talks about, you know, I'm not going to portray kids as everyone else does kids as Rosie. Kids are little shits. I'm going to just write them as, <laughs> as, as they are. And kind of that same approach here. But aside from the frank depiction of the characters is also the, the, the movie's constant reminder of, you know, what it was like being a woman at that particular point in time. And, you know, Jess's whole subplot and a bunch of different elements throughout the film. But I particularly think it's interesting aside from a lot of stuff that runs through it, that in the end, even in the, the final moments are ostensibly, you know, the potentially our one surviving character getting, you know, being left to die by a man's arrogance by saying, all right, done, you know, done and dusted. And it's like, well, mm-hmm. <laughs> that's, I mean, it, that that's definitely a theme and that, you know, the cops ignore them half the, the movie until John Saxon steps in. Yep. So people keep going, you know, we're getting these threatening calls. That's eh, just boyfriend yeah whatever you know the one cop is just completely dismissive you know what is he he's, they call him to talk him he's like yes ma'am we're very busy here child has been murdered in the park and then hangs up on her i'm like <laughs> man that is quite a thing for a cop to say <laughs> good looking out there officer you know and just he never fails to be incompetent <laughs> <laughs> he's not as bad as like the cop who won't go over to the house when she's busting out windows in nightmare on elm street but you know he's up there <laughs> <laughs> something weird's going on i know i was told to go over there right about now but hey just screaming and there's fire and i <laughs> whatever that's what we're talking about billy being up in in the attic for a good portion of the film and so just mentioned a little bit about the shout factory blu-ray i'll mention so billy's voice in this is predominantly done by nick mancuso yes standing on his head yeah going through a lot of hurdles to to capture the voice and yep but if anyone has the Shout Factory Blu-ray, he does a commentary track as Billy. Oh, God. <gasps> no, thank you. S- well, s- it's sort of like it's it's Nick Mancuso from like, you know, six, seven years ago doing a sort of kind of Billy. But it's basically like having the evil Midnight Bomber from The Tick do a running commentary <laughs> track. Where it's because like Margot Kidder's name. We talked about when Margot Kidder's name comes up earlier and he just goes, Margot Kidder. Superman! It just turns <laughs> off. He keeps saying, uh-oh, SpaghettiOs, like 10 times. <laughs> so it's if, if you haven't seen the film with that commentary and you're a fan of the film, you just watch a little bit of it. It's kind All of right. fast. His dedication to the bit is intriguing. I just, I yeah, those phone calls, they're awful. They still like, work. They're, yes. They're yeah. genuinely disturbing. You know, I not, you know, we talk, you know, not much gets to it after a while when you watch a ton of horror movies, but those get to me every time I watch this film. And I forget every time I watch it how crude they are too. Because uh, yeah. the last time I watched this before watching it earlier today, I watched it with uh, it's a family. Like my mom was over, and it was like me and Ooh. my mom and my wife <laughs> and my kid. And the first call comes in, and I was like, "Oh fuck!" Oops. <laughs> <laughs> Damn it! <laughs> Just trying to like stare at the wall and pretend like nothing is happening until it's over. <laughs> But yeah, they're definitely creepy. Like this, the way that they layered them, especially for the time, like it, it seems like some pretty incredible sound work for what they had to work with back in the you know, early seventies. Mm-hmm. But yeah, definitely unnerving. And the content of them really seem to drive this backstory. That you're, it's not explicitly told to you, but like 
something terrible happened to this person and then he did terrible things and he is forever changed and broken by them. And you just get little hints of that from the stories he tells over the phone. It's, oh, it's so unnerving. Well, if you want to find out his backstory, may I recommend 2006. <laughs> well, but apparently it's based on the backstory that Bob Clark had written for him. Uh, you know, that they, they kept him locked in the attic and, you know, he killed his parents yeah. and tried to kill his sister. And that was all. Yeah, it all makes sense. But it, it, we, I don't think we needed to see the movie. Uh, no, uh, not at all. Nope. None of that was needed. So awful. And the jaundice bit. Why was he jaundiced? I don't know. No, it doesn't. It, I was when I watched the film, I was trying to figure that out, like what it had to do with anything. And Nothing. I, unless I missed something, there's no. Uh, the the only thing I could come up with is it, him being jaundiced is why the mom doesn't love him. Right. Yeah. Maybe it's the only implication there. The, the only thing I could think of is the actor that got to play him was jaundiced. There's like screw it, throw it in the script, we're fine. <laughs> Lord, I, I do want. There's a novelization based on the original film that I want to check out, though. Apparently, it gives yeah. more backstory as well. Apparently it's hard to find. Yeah. I didn't go looking for it, but I read that it was it was out of print and pretty rare. The original script, if filmed as was written, would have been about three hours. Sure. Uh, they seriously cut that down. And apparently the novelization is based off that script. So there's a lot, yeah, there's a lot more in there. Well, I mean, you know, Bob Clark's got a lot of bits he's got to fit in, you know, that he didn't, you know, there are all these other movies that he didn't quite get to in this one. <laughs> you know, it's funny because I one of the things I read talking about him repeating motifs was the the fellatio phone number bit. <laughs> and i i was reading you know through again the imdb trivia we do real deep research on this podcast folks. <laughs> and what one of them compared it to the ralphie saying you know the oh, the fudge. oh fudge right and i keep trying to figure out how these are similar and it's just like it's these aren't really very similar no. it's a joke it, it's a stretch but imdb was convinced of course some of these imdb things are are pretty frequent. there's one about you know the the white and purple bed sheets and that you can find them on a quebec based shop called canopies and Ec cocktails and i'm pretty sure that's who put that one there <laughs> Right. There's another one. I, I want to read this one because it made me laugh when I read it. This is a you know dark laugh, but it's so. This is again from the IMDb trivia, which is why you should always read these for movies. Olivia Hussey for years turned down offers to appear at annual screenings of the film in Los Angeles, not out of dislike for the film, but shyness around large crowds. Bob Clark, who frequently attended, would always ask her personally. One year, she finally agreed to attend alongside her director and John Saxon. Three months later, Bob Clark and his son died in a car accident. Yep. Like, what? <laughs> what do those two things have to do with each other? It's it's, it's supposed to be, I guess, heart. It's like oh, she finally that, said you know, yes, oh. and he died. It's no, <laughs> but, no, she got lucky. But it's like holy shit, whoever wrote this. I mean, the, it's supposed to be the she didn't miss the opportunity to see it with him. You know, no, no, it's I get what right, they're right, trying right. to say, but, but it, they missed by such a wide margin. Yeah, it does sound to read like Olivia Hussey is Sadako from The Ring who said three months to Bob Clark when she saw him on stage or something. Yes, I'll go. And Good then God. he died. It's like, come on, man. That's that's almost as good as the ones that just criticize the movie. It's like, or the, the goofs. Here's the goofs, goof. which are just This movie was terrible. Yeah. <laughs> I like how this movie starts. Not the immediate start, but like when Billy shows up. I like the immediate up. start. <laughs> when Billy shows up and starts uh, climbing the trellis, mm-hmm. apparently the uh, cameraman had had a uh, a rig set up so the camera's attached to his shoulder, and then he starts climbing. So anytime you see the hands and the movement, 
it's the cameraman actually doing the work. I believe it was um, it's his eye too. No. Oh yes, it was his eye. I'm sorry, I was thinking the voice. The voice of Nick Mikuza, the eye and the body is Albert J. Dunk. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I wanna go and, and dig more into kind of the history of POV in horror a bit. Like Jake mentioned earlier, there's there's Michael Powell's peeping Tom, which is the precursor to a lot of stuff, but Well, that's the one that they said sort of invented that shot, and this was the one that gave it to the idea to for Halloween and Halloween yep. popularized it. I don't know if any of that's true. But I had, I had looked up wondering if this was the first because I've never seen Peeping Tom and I thought maybe this movie sort of invented that killer cam. Peeping Tom, it, it, it's I very much want to do Peeping Tom on here because I love that movie. But it's Peeping Tom. It's also very much a plot point. Peeping Tom is explicitly about a, a killer who has a camera with a knife mounted on the front of it. And, and that's how he kills his victims is because he wants to capture their expression at the moment, the exact moment they die. So it, it's very integral to the plot. So what I'd be curious to see are some of the Jalo films that probably preceded this by a little bit. Like I think I read that Mario Bava's Switch of the Death Nerve uses POV a bit, and that preceded this by a couple years. I definitely want to look into a lot of the Jalo stuff that would have been around the same time. Because again, Jalo stuff is a big blind spot for me, but I particularly thought of it too during the death of Margot Kidder's character with the slow motion framing, you know, of the glass unicorn, you know, coming down. Just the way the colors are done and the way that whole thing's framed in the slow motion, it felt very Jalo. So I, I definitely want to dig into that more at some point. To be fair, there's none of that in Malignant. And my understanding of Malignant is that it uses every Jalo trope it can possibly can and crams it all in there. So don't don't say too much about it. That's actually what I'm supposed to watch when we're done here. Oh, nice. Cool. That's going to siphon. Are we going to get a single episode where you don't shit on James Wan? <laughs> <laughs> technically shitting on them i was just pointing they can't see your face but i can see your face (laughs) (laughs) should go listen to our malignant episode folks i say some things why did i make that our first episode back from hiatus Uh, i did it to myself (laughs) i'm slowly destroying eric's dream of ever having james Wan on our podcast (laughs) oh he'll be here He'll have things to say to Just you. Just don't shit on Lee Waddle. <laughs> Whenever we do the Saw franchise, do it today. Just don't shit on Lee Waddle, okay? <laughs> so you haven't seen Malignant, Ed? I have not, no. Uh, it's supposed to be tonight, yeah. Let us know what you think. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I've heard like pretty mixed things, but I've... Uh, it's very polarizing. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've done a pretty good job of actually avoiding what, what the actual story is. Perfect. I know it's got heavy Jallo influences, but... Uh, I'm going in pretty blind. It is absolutely worth watching. All right. I don't believe you. <laughs> <laughs> it's a hell of a ride. All right. <laughs> <We> <laughs> I don't hate James Wan. I just didn't just like everything he does. One <laughs> in this recording. Like, <laughs> Christmas, Bob Clark's 1974. Jake can't possibly find a way to shit on James Wan for this. <laughs> Look, we've got bits and we got to stick to our bits, man. We got a checklist. Just when I know the answers, Jake changes the questions. (laughs) It was interesting. One of the other aspects of the film was reading about his inspiration for it. And when I say interesting, I mean completely horrifying because he talks about a serial killer named Wayne Bowden who was called the vampire rapist, Mm -hmm. which I'm not going to talk too much about, but that's awful. But it makes sense in terms of, you know, as an inspiration for this, I guess it was a uh, three women who were murdered in Montreal by a less than pleasant human being. Was that from Bob Clark or was it from Roy Moore, the other writer? 
Uh, Roy Moore. Okay. I was about to say, if it was Bob Clark, that'd be intriguing because, again, he's close friends with Alan Ormsby, who wrote Death Dream and Children Should Play With Dead Things, and Alan Ormsby's movie Deranged, which I think came around around this time, maybe a little bit before, but Deranged was one of the first cinematic movies to riff on Ed Gein. So, yep. bit of a connection there. But And now every other thing on TV is something about a serial killer and true crime. It feels like anyway. I can't gripe too much because true crime docs got me and my roommate through that and Star Trek or what got me and my roommate through, <laughs> you know, pandemic. So, yep. No matter how much your roommate, Steve, friend of the pod, Steve, tries to, to talk me into these things. I am never I've never even watched the uh, the Tiger one. Was it Tiger? Tiger. Uh, King? Oh, the, the time's coming gone on Tiger King. So yeah. she watched the staircase. Yeah. No. Yes. Look, the <laughs> last true crime thing I watched was. um Paradise Lost. The you one did. that that Dave. No, you watched Paradise Lost for that one episode, Pratt. Yeah, I seen Paradise Lost. No, I the uh Oh, a letter to Zachary. Yeah. Dear Zachary. Oh, Jesus Christ. <laughs> that was the last one I watched. I'm like, why do I do this? Sorry, Dear Zachary is the is the name, not a letter to Zachary. Yeah, that would destroy you. Yeah, yep. no, it did. It absolutely did. <laughs> and then later I had to send an, uh, a letter to somebody regarding our book that started with dear Zachary. And right. it's just like, oh. I, I just, it's like, why would you do this to me, Dave? Like we thought you liked us here on this podcast. <laughs> that film is like, uh, it's so ups- like the thing about dear Zachary is it, it got you. And then it's like, but wait, we're not done. There's more. And it, it twists and it just like, Oh, so I can see after watching that, why you would get out of true crime uh, documentaries. I, I am a, I have a huge soft spot for true crime documentaries. So, you know, I'll always watch them. I, I actually really like the Tiger King. It's it's all trash, you know, but uh, it was enjoyable. But uh, I haven't seen Tiger King 2 yet. Uh, no, me either. I don't think, I think like no one's interested anymore. I think they, you yeah. know, we had the first one and, and we're done. That felt like an of the moment thing. It's like, yeah, oh, we're yeah, all locked yeah, yeah, in the yeah, house yeah. and this is the new thing. Well, this is what we're all going to watch. Except me, I was playing Animal Crossing, but you know. <laughs> the they dropped thing. the week, right? I think it was like the week that everything sort of shut down or yeah. something. Yeah. Yeah. So, it's just, you know, fortunate timing, I guess, for them. But there's like, you know, the staircase is great. Um, staircase is wonderful. What's the one where the guy admitted to killing while he was taking a leak? Oh, uh, um, the Jinx? The HBO no. the one. Jin- the- yeah, uh, yeah, the Jinx. Yes, that was yeah. great. Where in the final Line. episode is Mike was still alive. Thin Blue Line is great. Yeah. Uh, yeah. There's so much, so much good stuff out there. So I just really quickly, because uh, remember, I was trying to remember the name of the Canadian agency that helps fund films. Yeah. It's called Telefilm Canada. Okay. They're the ones you'll see them in the credits a lot. But just a callback, something was mentioned earlier that uh, the Canadian Film Development Corporation, which is shown as a producer on like Black Christmas and all these films, is actually Telefilm Canada. They rebranded as Telefilm Canada later on. Okay. Huh. So there was some government money in these movies, is what I'm saying. Huh. Yeah, I'll have to go back to more Clark interviews talking about the the company that that fine and brought him in to do this. Yeah. Cause I know that was, it was definitely Canadian money that, that largely funded death dreams. So yes, that's interesting. Hey, here's a theory to jump back to Bob Clark repeatedly using things and kind of stuff showing up again and again. Maybe this is the grown up um, kid from a Christmas story is Billy. <laughs> oh, oh. He was Ralphie in the original oh, draft. Ralphie. <laughs> <laughs> oh. That that took place in the third, you know, the fifties ish, I think. 40? Maybe it was earlier than that. Just a thought. The timeline might work. Yeah, who knows? (laughs) (laughs) I do think it's interesting in terms of just Bob Clark's sensibilities in in terms of his sense of of pacing and his camera work and whatnot, that the things that lend himself to being so successful 
in horror and humor at the same time that he's he's done so well in both genres done not so well you know some later films are not so great you know loose cannons rhinestones some you know some some duds in there <laughs> but he when he hits it's it's really interesting around this time the elements of it that are consistent that that make him such a strong voice in both of those particular genres and i certainly wish he had stuck with the horror genre longer he, he from what he said he was pretty much well yep done moving on to something else but aside from him later wanting to remake children play with dead things but even that he was going to lean that movie has a very strong comedic element already he was going to lean even further into what it sounds like in the remake but. well his pacing in this i i think is fantastic like the kills are spaced out enough that you know it really builds to each of them it's not like so in the 2006 one you know to talk about another way that this gets it completely wrong it you know it redoes the the suffocation death but that happens before the credits it's like in the first 38 seconds of the film you know in this one it's you know it's early but it's you, you not get that early. Yeah. so much more and the pacing throughout this just really does a lot to build the tension to make it suffocating I didn't catch it when I watched the 2006 one, but I am rewatching this one. I noticed that the the unicorn that Margot Kidder gets stabbed with is in the 2006 one. Yeah. That I can't remember who gets killed with it. Someone gets killed with it. It doesn't matter. Nothing in that film matters, but. <laughs> Several people, I think, because the, the, the sister uses it as a weapon a couple of times. Yeah, okay. Anyhow. They, but they really, it, I will say this they make a really interesting back to back viewing. Because, you know, Black Christmas, you could legitimately call it a horror masterpiece, certainly a horror classic. And then you have this sequel remake to it, which is, you know, I, I look, I, it's, it's a terrible film. I think there's some <laughs> slight merit to parts of it. Like, I can't completely shit on a movie that has Mary Elizabeth Winstead in it, but it. it what if it was directed by James Wan? It's. Well, <laughs> Let's not. Let's not. Anybody. We don't need to test that. <laughs> Irresistible force me to move a ball. Well, just just think. Just think how long she would be on camera in a James Wan film. Since they take a week to watch, I could watch her for a week. She's a fantastic performer. But when you look at you look at everything he does right in Black Christmas, and then in the 2006, it's like every single choice that you made over here, you have this facsimile of over here, but completely wrong. So it's it's interesting to watch them back and forth because they are they are very similar movies. It's it's more remake than it is sequel, even though it's got the you know the sequel elements. It's like oh, Billy killed all these people, whatever. But it's it's just interesting to see these things like they're mirror images of each other in in such a funhouse sort of way that I while I I wouldn't recommend watching this movie for fun, you know, as your Christmas horror movie, or if you're only going to watch two Christmas horror movies. Make it Black Christmas and almost anything else. Um, watch Silent Night, Deadly Night, or uh, uh, watch Rare Exports. Rare Exports. Rare, rare Exports. Yeah. You know, maybe not Santa's sleigh, but you know some other things are out there. <laughs> hey, but it is it is interesting to watch them back to back. Not you know just interesting in the sense of you know here's you know the good way of doing things and you know don't do what Donnie don't does over here. So it's I don't. I didn't hate it as much as I thought it would. Certainly not as much as Nick, who hates it like he he hated uh, Paranormal Activity four over here, but <sighs> or three, four, four. Yeah, it was four. You didn't four, like, right? yeah. yeah, four. Yeah, the pivot. So, but I, you know, I didn't hate it that much. I just like Ed said, this is there's nothing of value to it other than it being a funhouse mirror to this. I would say it's awful. <laughs> 
I don't know if it has any, even as a cautionary tale, I'm not sure. No, it's just, see, I was curious going, again, I didn't rewatch it, but I know it was done by Glenn Morgan and James Wong. So I was curious if the X-Files connection was going to, because you really dug their episode of um, the Glenn Morgan episode of Twilight Zone we did, eight. Which he yeah, also wrote. no, look, so, I like Glenn Moore. I loved X Files. I mean, I that's why I had some hopes. Like, I know Nick hates this, but that usually works out in my favor. Not in this time. But <laughs> it, no, it's when I love it, it does not work in your favor. <laughs> neither of them, really. If I hate we, it, I'm taking us all down. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But, uh, <laughs> you know, and that's that's. What gave me some hope watching it, and it just it felt like so far removed from anything they'd done on X Files in terms of pace or craft or anything like that. You know what? What kept bothering me is what movie it kept making me think of was the people underneath the stairs. Mm. It's not good like that in any sense, but it's you know some of the the you know running around between the wall stuff, but also that that vague walking the line between being tongue in cheek and trying to be scary. Like I I. When we we have a the horror movie chat, we keep mentioning. I kept saying, "Is this supposed to be tongue in cheek?" Because it feels very trying to be tongue in cheek, but then it then other times it just feels like it's completely you know misfire and they're just bad. So it's it's got that weird you know place where you can't really tell. Although probably you know just bad, but yeah, I I know maybe that's why I just didn't hate it as much. Maybe because it kept making me thinking of things I liked more. I think you just <laughs> wanted to like it because I hated no. it. Well, no, that's not true. I, as soon as I saw that Mary Elizabeth Winstead was in it, I wanted to like it, and it didn't help. But she lasted a while, so that helped. Because if she had died in the first ten minutes of that, I would have watched the first ten minutes of that, and that would have been it. Would have been like, I don't need to watch this for the podcast tomorrow. Click, go back to watching Lock and Key and other good things. Ooh, lock and key. So I don't know. And I still, I haven't seen the third of the 2019 one. I very much, I will watch that in the next week or so. Yeah, we'll we'll definitely cover them both probably this time next year but no we should do good movies again next christmas movie we're having a, we're having a real real run of christmas episodes of good things well again not santa's sleigh but everything else one in four man <laughs> yeah no that was look i'm just that was that was our, our at our christmas episode last year we did rare exports silent night deadly night krampus and santa's sleigh yep so it was fun episode good movies Lots of good Christmas horror out there. Watch any of it but the 2006 version of this. Yes. <laughs> and maybe Santa's Slay. I, I, that's, <laughs> that's with Goldberg, right? That's the Goldberg yes! one. Yeah. All right, all right. I wonder if, oh, maybe that's a, a tax shelter too. That would explain a lot. No, tax shelter ended in uh, 82. So. Oh, uh, okay. Then nothing explains it. Although yeah. I do have the, I, uh, I, you know, I was going to wear it for this. I had the, the minor, the, um, the, the Flint uh, Flon Bombers, Bombers shirt that yeah. Eric got me because it comes up in that the minor league hockey stuff. Why are you shaking your head? It was a great part of that movie, Eric. <laughs> nah, Nick. Sorry. Wow. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's because I was thinking you bought the shirt. <laughs> Miss late. I'm tired. Leave me alone. The union lost today. Everything's bad. I'm happy you like hockey. Ed's been subjected <laughs> to even more of our nonsense than most guests. So yeah, thank you for. <laughs> sorry, Ed. Uh, it's all good. But no, this is, yeah, it's funny you mentioned, again, I didn't rewatch the the remake, but it's funny you mentioned the tonal stuff, because again, it's such a big takeaway for this one, is what a tonal balancing act this movie is, again, that it exceeds so well at the humor and so well at the horror. It's, the movie is just, again, I was really struck by watching it, being like, you know, holy shit, this really is a, a masterpiece, basically, and just this 
absolutely perfectly structured and paced balancing act tonally where it just all clicks. It very much deserves its reputation. Yeah, it just really picks you up from the beginning and it doesn't drop you. It just keeps you rolling through the whole way and it ends perfectly, in my opinion. I, I love the ambiguity of it all and I, and I love the not knowing. Oh, ugh, sweet. <laughs> the, the ambiguity is such an important part of it. And I, yes. I just, I really think not, not every movie can pull that off, but this movie just really did a phenomenal job of not telling you, but telling you just enough to keep you thinking about it. And I wish more movies nowadays would do that. Like it, to reference 2006 again, 2006 tells you everything. And it's like, here's all my cards. It's like trying to do a card trick where you're looking at the back of the cards and they're looking at the front. I mean, it's, it just doesn't work. And with this one that just keeps you, you just don't know. And, you know, people are still talking about it now. So it's, I mean, that would, what a, what a masterful thing. So it's part of what's the attraction of Halloween, I think, or at least the early Halloweens is that you don't get much about Michael Myers. It's, I mean, you know, you know, he was this kid, but you, you don't know what's going on in his head or anything like that. For the most part, he's just a force of nature. Right. Right. And as horror movies have gone along, you get, more and more backstory and more and more idea like that that sense of ambiguity seems to have leaked out of, of the genre in a lot of ways it's not gone no, but... there there's one formula of horror i'm finding myself to be a big fan of where the first movie of a franchise is just the force of nature bit you know it just shows up it wrecks hell it does whatever its bit is sticks to its rules does whatever needs to be to happen to accomplish its goals and then the second movie starts to delve into backstory, history, lore, actually getting to learn what this thing is. You know, I, I like the idea of developing a character over movies instead of let's just dump everything in 90 minutes, you know, and you can do whatever you want with it. I, I, I like the idea. Oh, sure. But then I make you watch Paranormal Activity and you get mad at me. It breaks its own rules. <laughs> <laughs> it's two different franchises hinged at like three or four. No, 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 no. Not okay. Unacceptable. Fuck you. But everything else you just <laughs> said you like, it does. No. It expands and adds on to. It doesn't break its own rules. The Scary Stuff Podcast. Rolled wounds never heal. <laughs> they just continue to seep. Look, some people have traditions where they watch Black Christmas. We have Christmas traditions where we yell at each other. It's family. <laughs> Nothing but love. <laughs> but, yeah. This movie's phenomenal. I've had a great time discussing it. And Ed, thank you so much for coming on to chat with us about it. Hey, thank yeah. you. No problem. You know, I'm always happy to hop on and like talk about horror movies and stuff like that. I think like, you know, I do a lot of comics podcasts and sometimes it's like, sometimes I just <laughs> leave the office. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> I don't always want to talk about comics. So yeah, that was great. Like, you know, I'm a huge horror guy. Well, hey, so. anytime you want to come back, we'd love to have you back. Love to have you. Yeah, anytime. Well, look into the look into the Canadian tax shelter stuff, and maybe you know, maybe do yeah, yeah, Canadian yeah, tax absolutely. shelter episode. Fair warning, we we bicker this much pretty much every episode, but that's fine. We can tone it down next time. <laughs> <laughs> to to touch on your comics work a little bit, so uh -huh. you've got the uh, well, one is you worked on an issue of the Silver Coin, and the trade of that just came out in October. Mm -hmm. Folks want to check that out. It's very good. How'd that come about? The working on the series with Michael Walsh. Uh, Walsh and I are, are good friends. We, My first published work and his first published work was our book, uh, Comeback, which came out in 2012 uh, through Image back in the day. And uh, 
we'd known each other for a couple of years before comeback. He'd hired me when I used to letter comics, which I, I did for a long time as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, he hired me to letter a pitch that he'd wrote and had written and drawn. And uh, I liked his art, so I kind of worked out some sort of work trade with him where uh, I was doing a series called Murder Book. I would have him come on and draw an issue or a short story for Murder Book. And, you know, our friendship sort of built from there. We talk, you know, we talk at least three, four times a week. Nice. So when he was first talking about doing uh, Silver Coin, uh, yeah, it was it was an easy yes for me. I'm like, I'm a big horror fan, but I haven't done any horror stuff. You know, you could argue that my series Sheltered is sort of horror adjacent, but it's more like contained thriller, I guess you could say, if you want to use a movie term. And Beyond the Breach has some sort of horror elements to it as well, but it's like kind of a more sci-fi-ish thing. So I never had an opportunity to do straight horror, so I kind of was very excited to hop on that and do it. And, uh, you know, it's got me sort of jonesing to do some horror. I'm, I'm trying to put together a horror project right now. Ooh, nice. Nice. It's very, very early days. It may all fall apart. It'll go through 52 titles before it comes out. But uh, yeah, I'm working. You know, I, it was just a, a fun thing to do. And, uh, you know, I had the opportunity to read Chip and Kelly's scripts before doing mine. So I had this idea. I wanted to connect the stories. So if you read, if you read them out of order, you read Chip's, you read mine, and then you go back and read Kelly's, you'll see that mine actually bridges ties the timeline between the two um yeah so that's basically it there's not not a huge story behind it it's just you know mike and i are friends and uh he asked me on it and uh, of course i I said yes and uh yeah it it ended up being great i was very excited to be part of it i think uh you know i've been reading them as they come out so i just got to read the matt rosenberg issue that i'm not sure when that one is out but soon it's uh it's a banger as they say really good (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, I didn't. I had no idea that uh, Silver Coin would, you know. Obviously, you always hope anything you work on does well. But you know, I think when we started working on it, it was kind of just before horror started to really have this sort of resurgence in comics that's been going on in the last year and a bit. So that was exciting to see. Yeah, and you mentioned the other series, um, which we talked about at the time we did our live stream with Captain Blue Hen, which is our local comic shop. The first issue of Beyond the Breach was out, which, like you mentioned, certainly has horror adjacent elements, particularly in that opening issue. And the trade of this is coming out in March from Aftershock? Is it March? I thought it was February, but uh, with paper supply issues, it could have been pushed back. First quarter 2022, to be determined. February, March, somewhere around there. I think it's February 25th, and I'm going to look on the calendar right now, and that'll be a Sunday or something like that. I'll be way off. Uh, (laughs) But uh, like I said, paper supply issues have really really been messing with things here. All right. February 23rd. Okay. Don't quote me on that. It could be March. It could be right. Yeah. Fingers crossed it. It hits the February date. But yeah, either way, I read all five issues. Very it's a, good. Yeah. Thanks. It's the singles. Speaking of, uh, you have a web store at your website where you're selling at least the first couple singles, I think, as well as trades of a lot of your other books. Yes. So I haven't added more stuff onto the store because I, I'm going to be transitioning. Someone else is going to take over the store for me because it's it's like an extra thing that's uh, it's just an extra thing. <laughs> like, you know. <laughs> I don't want to do it, but I, I'll have the issues up soon. I'll have the trade up, and uh, I don't know how much I'm supposed to be talking about it, but you know, I'll deal with it if they don't like me um, talking about it, which they're probably fine because Aftershock has been great. But yeah, we we're already talking about more beyond the breach. Thank God, because originally the five issues was really supposed to just tell one story, and I really wanted to keep going on and tell other stories. So 
hopefully later in 2022, there will be more Beyond the Breach coming. Well, that's exciting. Yeah, here's hoping. You, you'd mentioned in the afterward to issue five that you had had more that you were hoping to do. So I'm glad to hear that's on the table. Yeah, I have a bad habit of, of pitching five issue miniseries to publishers that in my heart are really like 15 to 20 issues <laughs> and are just me praying that, you know, we can, we get the audience to continue. And thankfully, you know, for beyond the breach, people showed up and, and aftershock. Your bullseye mini was five issues and I could have done with it being 15 to 20. Absolutely. And <laughs> that was my first Marvel gig. It was that like, I'd done a couple single issues before that, but bullseye was like my first thing. And when it, I was offered it, it was a five issue mini and if it did well enough, could possibly be an ongoing. And uh, I was hoping for the same as well. I had a really exciting second arc planned if if uh, that were the case. But obviously, you know, it's just a miniseries about a villain. It's hard to get the sales there for that. But I love that series. It was my first thing there. I'm really proud of how it came out. It was a really messed up uh, thing. If I, I just sideline for a sec here. But like when I was offered that gig, there was one thing I had to do because Bullseye was dead at that point. Mm. And they wanted me to bring Bullseye back. And so I spent two weeks developing this pitch for them. And the day before, I found in another comic someone else had brought Bullseye back, uh, <laughs> which was the whole <laughs> thrust of my my pitch. So I had to throw my pitch away the day before it was due. And oh, uh, I wrote a whole new pitch over 24 hours. Oh. I, I didn't sleep. I stayed up and wrote a whole new pitch. And I sent it to Walsh, Mike Walsh. And he was like, yeah, this is good, but it's like, it feels like a Marvel book or something you think that Marvel wants and not like a you book, something you want to do. And I was like, fuck. So I <laughs> that one away. <laughs> and the pitch to the one that ended up becoming the book, I wrote in four hours. Oh, my. To get it into them the day it was due, uh, like before the office closed. You know, you, you want to end a day, you want it in their inbox. You know, like I, I did cannibalize parts from the, the previous pitches, but that whole almost wholly new pitch that I had to put together, uh, which is sad because I got to bring back like Bullet and Shotgun, which are yep. characters from the, you know, 80s Daredevil run that I, I really loved. Anyway, I'm rambling at, the, at this point, but uh, yeah, I was I, I really, still really happy with that Bullseye thing. And I wish I, you know, I'd have the opportunity to do more Bullseye, but it is what it is. No, it, it, you mentioned it feeling <laughs> too much like a, a Marvel book and not enough like a you book. Your voice absolutely comes through in it. I thought it was a terrific read. It's it's funny. We just uh, we just recently did a review of Nightmare on Elm Street three, the Dream Warriors, and I'm was read the original Wes Craven Bruce Wagner draft, and I talked about how the finale of that original script kind of felt like this weird splatterpunk Roadrunner cartoon, whereas Bullseye kind of feels like a splatterpunk Elmore Leonard, I guess almost. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so the the level of carnage in it mixed with the you know Colombian cartels. I'm a uh, Elmore Leonard is my favorite author. Oh, perfect. So, yeah, nice. so you probably hit the nail on the head. And when I was in fine arts, I actually ended up dropping out of fine arts in university because I discovered Elmore Leonard at a used bookstore one day, like one of his books. And I read it in 24 hours. And then I went back and Elmore Leonard's got like you know 50 books or whatever. And I bought all the used Elmore Leonard I could find. And I didn't go back to school for like two and a half weeks. <laughs> I was just stuck in my in my room reading Elmore Leonard. I was just like, I'd never read anything like that. And uh, he's still to this day, one of my favorite authors. Yeah. I, I've only seen adaptation. La Brava has been, I guess, like if you're going to read one, La Brava is the one to read. So I guess so that one's been on my wish list for like 10 years, but I'll get, to I would someday. say my, my one, two, I always recommend is the switch. Okay. And rum punch, uh, rum punch 
became Jackie Brown. Yep. Uh, but the Switch is there. Rum Punch is a sequel to the Switch. And Ruthless People, the movie Ruthless People, kind yes! of ripped, kind of ripped off the Switch like pretty hard <laughs> because the whole premise is the same. It's about a, a, a kidnappers who kidnap someone's wife, and the guy is like awesome. I don't like. He doesn't tell the kidnappers, <laughs> but he's like he doesn't want her back, and it becomes a whole thing. Uh, if you're going to check out Elmer Leonard, La Brava is great, but like those are the ones I always recommend. It's like it's the perfect books for getting books in. Great. Awesome. Yeah, Ed, this has been uh, you don't have anything else coming up that you can plug, right? I do. Yeah, like I was saying earlier, like I'm working on a ton of stuff, but uh, nothing that's been announced yet. At some point in January, I believe the dam is going to burst and it'll look like I have like 30 announcements all within a week. <laughs> but it's all, all stuff I've been working on for a while. Yeah, whatever you write, we'll read. But in the meantime, Ed, this has been wonderful. Thank you so much for Thank coming on. Thank you very the pod. much for Thank coming on. Thank you very on. much. All right. Thanks a lot, guys. And once again, big thanks to Ed Brisson for coming onto the pod. That was a, a see, told you it was a great discussion at the top of the episode. <laughs> he was fabulous. Would we lie? <laughs> Ed's great. Everyone check out his books. Well, definitely, we're going to link to all his recent stuff on Twitter. Definitely check out the Silver Coin, too, if you like horror stuff. That book's really fun. Yeah. Yeah, this has been a tremendous amount of fun. And sorry we couldn't do a longer one, but it's nice that we could do a little little holiday mini so to close out the year here. It's perfect. A little little like, you know, star in the Christmas tree that you can then climb up and kill people in. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I, I, I think it's nice we got to do a Christmas episode. We we look forward to these these horror holiday movies. It's always a fun time and uh it's always a good way for me to even now piss off my mother. Yeah. Just conceptually. <laughs> I mean no, <laughs> but I mean, like, you know, even with just a Christmas mini here, we we have filled up the eggnog bowl with content this month. So, mm-hmm. yeah, uh... <laughs> that sounded way dirtier than I meant it. Maybe I shouldn't have said eggnog. <laughs> we lit a Yule log. You'll f- nope. Nope. I'm not getting any better. Back up, back up! <laughs> Help me. I'm in a tailspin. <laughs> I'm, in the, I'm the land where nothing's clean anymore. No. <laughs> Where's that little elf dentist? Holy shit. Help me out of here, brother. It bumbles, strikes again. <laughs> Sound like the cop from the fucking Black Christmas movie. Jake, the innuendo is coming from inside the episode. <laughs> Fellatio 555. Oh, man. So, yeah, like we mentioned at the end of our Elm Street episode, we've got some stuff coming up. We've got the Toby Hoover mini-sode coming up. Yeah, um, We've got two specific mini-sodes. Hopefully, we're going to get done in February. So, I don't know which of those will be out first. We'll find out. So, ostensibly, this is going to function as our... Technically, this isn't the end of our second year, but it's close enough that this is basically our year-end episode. And in the spirit of it being a, a quick year-end episode, just to get some thanks out real quick, One thing I certainly want to do is say thank you to all the folks who, just like we were lucky enough to have Ed Brisson on for this episode, send a quick thanks out to our guests who came on our pod here in 2021. And running down this list of of folks we've had on the pod, you know, we had interview with Evil Ted Smith, Justin Dow from Eerie Earfuls, Gabino Iglesias, Trevor Henderson, Preston Fossil, Seth Adam Kallick, Rom V, Danny Lore, Haley Piper, Steve Fox, and, you know, our First, and someone who's you know very special, all of us here at the pod, Dave Lawson Jr. Love you, Dave. We love you. So thank you to to everyone I just mentioned, but also it's you know I don't 
I don't put over our podcast very much. You know, I leave that up to Jake. I don't mark out over our own stuff very much. You know, my perspective is very much, well, the pod has me on it. Ergo, it has a very inherent flaw. Just me being real. <laughs> oh! No, but I say that too. And just- Eric, you are our Christmas star. <laughs> Nick and I are just not wise men follow, wandering around in the desert until you shine brightly and bring us home. I, I may be a delicious honey glaze, but you are the ham that makes this podcast what it is, sir. <laughs> <laughs> Nick and I are the, the Melchior and Gaspar to your baby Jesus. Yeah. I'm Gaspar. <laughs> Hang on to that thought of the three wise men, but because <laughs> I'm going to mention something else related to that in just a second. But. The rare case of me actually going to put over our pod real quick is I will say something nice about our own pod. When I sat down and listed, you know, all the folks we had on as guests in 2021, every single person I listed, we had a fabulous time with and they were terrific guests. But it's just looking at that. It really made me sit and go like, man, that's that's a pod I would like to listen to. (laughs) Yeah. Just looking at that guest list. So I'm to put ourselves over real quick. I'm I'm very proud of. You know, a lot of the work we put out in 2021, again, for as much as I can be given my, you know, 15 layers of relentless self-deprecation you got to drill through. It's like the finale of Thief, you know, where you (laughs) have the, you know, the heated thing to burn into the vault, you know, to get something positive. But yeah, big thanks to everyone who was a guest on the pod. Can't thank everyone enough. But wanted to give a shout out to a couple other pods as well, because there's there's no shortage of fabulous horror pods. We've been lucky enough to interact with a lot of folks out there. And if you're not checking them out already, give them a listen. You know, we mentioned before Kara and Aaron from Bad Girls Die First. Yeah. Fabulous pod. Woo! Who were nice enough to give us a shout out on their most recent episode, which was on Midnight Mass. So if you already listened to our episode on Midnight Mass, absolutely go check out theirs. It's a really fun chat. And, and anybody else's Midnight Mass episode, because, I mean, come on, how can you get, you know, ever get enough? You can't have a bad Midnight Mass episode. Unless the people don't like it, in which case, just stop listening to that pod entirely. <laughs> <laughs> it is the litmus test. Yeah, no, but there, it's a great episode. Like I, I mentioned on Twitter, it features, I think, the second best use of Holly Holy next to Midnight Mass itself in their episode. But it also transitions into a discussion of Denis Villeneuve's Dune at the end. So it's it's a really fun chat. But Kara and Aaron are fabulous. Bad Girls Die First is a great pod, so please check them out. Absolutely needs to be in your rotation. We mentioned Justin earlier um, with their earfuls. You know, I believe they're on hiatus at the moment, but absolutely check out their back catalog. But yeah, there is just no shortage of great pods out there. You know, Nightmare on Fierce Street, Nightmare on Fifth Street, Brother Ghoulish, Watched Once, Never Again, uh, Scarred for Life. And we'll, we'll link to a bunch of them on Twitter if we haven't already. But seriously, there's a lot of great pods out there. But the reason I zeroed in on the three wise men bit was one pod i wanted to give a shout out to which isn't a horror pod which is sync ratios which is the pod i recently discovered which is a episode by episode walkthrough of neon genesis evangelion and it is run by so here's the horror connection ben collins and luke piotrowski who uh if you're a horror fan you would know them as the writers of super dark times oh so good the Nighthouse. Oh, so good. And they're also working with Nighthouse's director, David Bruckner, on the upcoming Hellraiser remake. Nice. I have no opinion on that yet, since I've never <laughs> seen a Hellraiser movie. To be determined. Uh, but those yeah. other two ones are fucking great. So. <laughs> but if you're an Evangelion fan, I it's one of those pods where it's like, oh, it's the structure and feel of their pod is very much kind of like what I want ours to be. It's just like as it's it's a great balance of 
informational and also just plain fun. There's a ton of great information. These guys are both longtime screenwriters, so they bring a lot of excellent analysis to things. But I always think of it because Evangelion is the reason I can name the three wise men, Caspar, Balthazar, and Melchior, because there are supercomputers in Evangelion that are named after the three wise men. So, oh, shit. Yes. <laughs> so, oh, that's so fine. That, so that's the only reason I that know is that. That's a trippy-ass series, man. Oh, shit. <laughs> I tried to watch, like, the first three or four episodes way back when I managed a comic book shop, and it just, it was my little nerd brain was just not in sync with that. <laughs> But yeah, I, I just wanted to give some other pods a shout out real quick. Again, I'm, there's a bunch of folks I'm sure I'm forgetting, but I just wanted to to name a few folks. But mainly also, I just want to send a big thanks to you, whoever you may be who's listening to this episode, because honestly, we can't thank our listeners enough for all the support we've had in 2021. You're the reason we do it all. Except Randy. The hell with that guy. <laughs> <laughs> we love you, Randy. Randy picked a bad day to <laughs> on a very particular comment Jake made in our recently released <laughs> You did it to yourself, Randy. But he's not wrong. <laughs> that doesn't make it right. <laughs> well, look, if we're doing thanks, then I've, I've got a few I want to drop to. First and foremost, and the biggest one is to you, Eric, because you make this entire pod go. Your editing is sublime. You know, the intros that you write are, you know, I can't get through each time because I'm laughing and I've read it 16 times. So hard. Laughing so and hard. I know you're already thinking about cutting this I out. Say, but talk, talk it up, fuzzball. It's all getting cut. <laughs> I, too, am recording this part of the pod so that I can just put it back in. I got the controls, too, bitch. What are you going to do now? <laughs> My God, he's been saving the WAV file in the background the whole time. I, I got to find the thumb drive and destroy it. <laughs> but, but seriously, and, and I think it's important for our listeners to know just how much work Eric actually does on here compared to nick and i who are i, I want to use the term talent but that feels so loose and wrong in this we're case we're <laughs> we're the other guys no 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 so eric i you know appreciate it, especially all the work this year because it's been a tough year yeah thank you so much it means a lot because the recording these podcasts and doing this with you guys is, is almost the highlight of my month month in month out uh and i think it's you know i love you guys and i love doing this with you and it's a lot of fun I and i am you guys too Love you guys. Love you, boo. And, you know, like Eric said, everybody who listens to this is a gift as far as we're concerned, and we really do enjoy it. And I also want to say I really appreciate all the friends and family we have who support us in this. You know, Hannah was on our episode. That's Nick's wife. And she she supports this pod. And I'm quite fond of her. <laughs> my wife supports it. And folks like Steve and Eric Remington, who listens to every episode, and Randy, who we mentioned, and you know, there's there's so many people who listen to this that we could talk about. We just found an old friend of ours, Dave Baker, listen to this. So yeah. Shout out, Dave. That, that was surprising. That's pretty awesome it's good to, to hear. hear from you, Dave. You know, not my brother who's been on the pod but doesn't listen to the pod. He can go fuck himself. <laughs> <laughs> He's spent enough time listening to you, to be fair. And and my parents who don't listen to him, they're, you know, I'm not going to tell them to do what I just told my brother to do. But, you know, they don't <laughs> listen, so they're never going to hear this. But no, we really do appreciate it. Jason Colatriano over at uh, Captain Blue Hens yeah. is a huge supporter. Yes. Everybody at Captain Blue Hens is a huge supporter of us. Absolutely. And yeah. we, we can't thank them enough for backing us as much as they do. And when we talk about Captain Blue Hens, we love this store. We love the people there. And it's a big part of our lives. Uh, and it's a big part of this podcast, as it's turned out. So we really appreciate that. And 
you know, I'm going to, I'm going to forget people, but there's, there's just so many. And like I said, every listen is a gift. And every time somebody mentions having listened to the pod to me or comments on something we've talked about, it, it feels really special. Uh, and I really appreciate it more than probably people understand. So thanks everybody. And Shasta too. And Fred who have both been on the pod. Yes. I just feel like we should mention them. And number one fan, Dan Bogart. Woo! Love you. Yeah. Love you all. Yeah. But it's, it's, it's very special. So we appreciate it. So I guess this is my part to say my thanks. This is like the single worst thing I am good at. <laughs> you like that I snuck in and thanked your wife just to keep make sure our base was covered in case you forgot? I would have said it. <laughs> it was already in my head. You stole it from me. Now she won't believe me. She'll pick on me for it. Fuck you. <laughs> Well, I would like to start the good top looking of this. out slash way to fuck me over. That's <laughs> <laughs> like, it's a delayed burn right there. You're not going to hear that for two weeks. And then now you're just going to be like, what the fuck? And Nick's already done being mad. <laughs> I'd like to first thank you two. You make this an absolute joy. I look forward to every time we do one of these. I come into it hyped and I leave thoroughly happy and blissed out. I have loved every guest we've brought on. Everyone has been fun and exciting and interesting. I love everybody who's listening. Thank you so much. You make this so worth it just to know that uh, our meandering rambling can entertain even one of you. <laughs> Brightens my heart. <laughs> and I love just talking about movies. So I'm, I'm really thankful that this is even an opportunity on any level. And... If anyone out there is hearing this, know that I appreciate you and thank you. This is getting really gushy for the Eat Shit and Die podcast. I know. <laughs> I did start off with a fuck you, though, so that works out yeah. well. <laughs> Eric's over here like, these two fucks can't even get through a nice outro without bickering. God damn it. <laughs> I but I mean we keep we really can't say it enough. This podcast is a mitzvah, and everything about it is special to us, and that includes everyone, not my brother, but everyone else. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thank you both. Love you both, and and thank you to everyone who's listening. Thank you again to our guests. Hopefully, you've enjoyed listening to this episode. We we've had a ton of fun recording it. If you're celebrating any holidays or not, but no matter what, we just. Hope you're all happy, healthy, and safe in 2021 and wish you all nothing but the best in 2022. Amen. Hells yeah. So with that, we'll be back in 2022 with some fun minisodes before we get back into the back half of our Nightmare on Elm Street retrospective. But... Dream child. Woo! Can't wait. <laughs> yeah, I'm excited. Lot... <laughs> a lot of dread for dream child. <laughs> Just people beating down our door to be on that episode. <laughs> 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 what could go wrong <laughs> oh I, I and special one last shout out for me that shout out to james wan i don't really mean it i mean it <laughs> man someday we're just gonna note saying hey i'd like to be on your podcast like r r really you, you've listened to our podcast oh i've listened to it i need to talk to you <laughs> like, oh okay uh we're doomed. Have a merry malignant Christmas. <laughs> it's the most hotly debated time of the year. <laughs> so, well, that's a perfect way for us to go out. So, yeah, again, thank you for listening. Wishing you all the best. This is Eric signing off. Thank you so much. This is Nick saying, keep it weird. 
This is Jake signing off and saying thanks, everybody, for everything. Take care, everybody. Good night. Happy holidays. Happy holidays. No, no, no. Not okay. Unacceptable. Fuck you.